Welcome to a Pulp Event Podcast, brought to you by the PulpNet, your link to the online world of the Pulp magazines, since 1996, online at thepulp.net. This Pulp Event Podcast features a panel discussion titled, From Pulps to Comics. It was recorded on Friday, February 21st, 2014, at Pensacon, in Pensacola, Florida. The panel was moderated by Jeff Shanks, an archaeologist and anthropologist, and an expert in the field of weird fiction in the pulps. He is joined by Nikki Wheeler-Nicholson, the granddaughter of Major Malcolm Wheeler-Nicholson, a pulp fictioneer and founder of DC Comics, and by David Earle, a professor of literature at the University of West Florida. Here is Jeff. This is the From Pulps to Comics panel. Uh, I'd like to welcome everybody. Is everybody having a great time at Pensacon so far? Yeah. yeah. It's pretty cool, right? All right, so how many people here know what a pulp magazine is? You know, most of you guys do, right? Um, wow. You'd be surprised, actually, you know, how often we ask that question and people give you a blank stare. Oh, yeah, you mean like the, the paperbacks from the 60s or, you know. Um, but pulp magazines were a, a huge part of popular culture uh, in the first half of the 20th century. Uh, they are precursors to a lot of the, the genres that we're celebrating here today at Pensacon. You know, they began in the pulp magazines, horror, fantasy, science fiction. Uh, they all began in these old, disposable, cheap magazines uh, that people used to read and throw away. Um, and they had a huge influence, in particular, on comic books. And that's one area uh, that we're going to be focusing on with this panel today. So why don't we uh, introduce ourselves. I'll let all the panelists introduce themselves. I'll start with me. I'm, my name is Jeffrey Shanks. Um, I'm an archaeologist and anthropologist by day, but I also do uh, pulp history and comics history. And um, in particular, um, I study, do a lot of studying um, Robert E. Howard, the guy that uh, created Conan, and H.P. Lovecraft, who I'm sure some of you have heard of. Uh, Weird Tales magazine is sort of my specialty. Um, I've got, uh, got some articles out on those things. I'm going to pass it on to my, my colleague here let her introduce herself. I'm Nikki Wheeler-Nicholson, and um, my grandfather started, uh, basically started the whole comic book industry and um, founded DC Comics. And my background is I started out in theater. I grew up here on the Gulf Coast and went to New York. and. Um, then I got a master's degree in classical Greek uh, theater and mythology, which is perfect for comics. And I've been uh, working on my grandfather's biography for a long time now. And um, if any of you have read Men of Tomorrow, Gerard Jones and I are collaborating on a biography. Uh, I'm David Earl. I'm actually a, a professor at University of West Florida. I specialize in both modernist literature and print culture, especially pulp magazines. Um, and I teach classes uh, at UWF specializing in genre fiction, uh, Victorian fiction, and from time to time, when I'm lucky, pulp fiction as well. A few of my students who I've tortured doing so are in the audience today. And if you have a chance, actually, at University of uh, West Florida, I'm sure most of you will be here tomorrow, but there is an art show on pulp going on right now through tomorrow. So, uh, there you go. Okay. Well, why don't we why don't we start by talking about what pulp magazines are and get a little background history on pulp magazines. 
David, do you want to talk about that? Sure. Uh, well, David's got a presentation here that he's sort of yes. I mean, so so when we when we actually think about um, about pulp magazine, about that term pulp, right? Most people think about sensationalism, extreme commerciality. They think about um, sort of kitschiness. Most people know it from the term Pulp Fiction, right? Quentin Tarantino's movie, which is actually a homage to the Grindhouse films of the 1970s and really doesn't have anything to do with actual pulp, right? So originally what pulp meant is it stemmed from wood pulp paper magazines. The paper that these certain magazines started about 1895, 1896 were printed on, right? But of course, culturally, we've lost uh, that material definition, that original definition, and it now is being used to stand for anything that's extra sort of commercial, right? We use it, for example, to describe the men's magazines of the 1950s and the paperbacks of the 1940s and the 1950s, as opposed to um, really its foundations, which were very much a, a, a very specific type of form, right? All fiction magazines, no fiction in them, on wood pulp paper of a very certain dimension, right? Uh, what is it, about seven and a half inches by, by eight, more or less, right? And uh, these were the reading material of the working class, millions and millions of Americans between roughly 1895 and the mid-1950s. And this is the form where we get so many, uh, not only genres, uh, and other forms, such as the comic books, stem from them, but so many characters that are central to American culture, right? Tarzan, uh, Buck Rogers, uh, John Carter of Mars. Um, Conan, Zorro. Uh, Conan, Zorro, for example, right? Um, the Philip Marlowe, Sam Spade, right? All these names that we know from American popular culture got their foundations in pulp magazines, as did modern science fiction, as did modern horror. Um, has did many lost genres such as aviation stories and gangster stories, right? All of them find their foundations in these magazines, but these magazines have really um, been swept under the rug for many different reasons when it comes to literary history. Um, most people know of them now, if they know of them, has the sort of precursors of the comic book. Right. Mm -hmm. um, at which, uh, which, which other people here, since I specialize in the magazines as opposed to comics, can speak of more, much more fluidly than right. I can. Well, right? you know, one of, uh, you know, in particular, we, we think of the comic books, you know, most people think of the origins of the comic books as coming from the newspaper comic strips, which is absolutely true. You know, that's, that was the form of, you know, sequential art, this idea of telling a story in, you know, sequential panels uh, of artwork, you know, used as a narrative, you know, and that's, you know, the, the uh, newspaper strips in the 1920s uh, and 1930s were a huge, uh, giant, full pages. You know, whole, you know, one strip would get a full page. These were a major form of entertainment at the time, just like the pulps were. And really, the comic book, in a lot of ways, it was sort of a, a coming together of these two forms of entertainment. You had the, the medium itself, you know, comic art, uh, did come from the newspaper strips. But much of the material, as David was, uh, was talking about, much of you know, the actual stories, actual content, uh, was being influenced by the pulps. And you know, that's not an accident. The reason is because a lot of the, the first guys that had the idea of, hey, let's take these newspaper strips and sell them on the newsstands, you know, take them out of the newspapers, and sell them on their own. You know, put them together in some sort of package and sell them on their own. The guys that had that first idea 
were guys that were coming from the pulps. They were pulp writers and they were pulp publishers. Uh, like uh, Nikki's grandfather here. So why don't you tell us a little bit about your grandfather? And this will give us an idea of where the, how the pulps and comics came together in publishing. You know? Well, I'm going to put a human face to the, uh, the history and that's my grandfather. He started out um, in uh, the military and he had a really adventurous military background. He was on the Mexican border chasing Pancho Villa. He was in charge of Troop K of the famed African-American Buffalo soldiers. He was in the Philippines fighting the Muslim Moros, which is still going on today. He was in Siberia in 1917 with the Expeditionary Force there, and he was uh, in military intelligence. So he saw firsthand some amazing uh, events in history. And then he went to Europe, and um, we think he was involved in espionage there. I, from what I've been able to glean from the declassified military files, that's what it looks like. And um, when he got out of the army, he uh, started writing for the pulps. But at the same time, he also, in 1926, he already had a vision of the graphic format. And in 1926, he started a newspaper syndicate and he put in graphic form Robert Louis Stevenson's Treasure Island. He was the first person to do that. And all the Stevenson scholars uh, cite him as the person who did that. He also did Ivanhoe and Edgar Allan Poe. And uh, so he already had this vision of the graphic representation of stories. You know, it, it, it might actually help even to contextualize that a little bit more to describe what was happening in the pulps around 1926 and maybe even back up a little bit. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right. Um, just to show exactly how visionary he was. So the very first pulps actually stemmed, I hope you guys can see, actually stemmed from the dime novels of the 19th century, right, which started rising about the mid-19th century, around the time of the Civil War. And the dime novels, also called boys papers or nickel papers, right, were these very formulaic types of fiction. Western fiction, detective fiction, they grew out of urbanization. Uh, they were really the first sort of American popular format. And we can see the sort of genealogy between dime novels to pulp novels, even with the names. Nick Carter, for example, the first sort of ongoing detective dime novel, right? Um, eventually became Nick Carter, the pulp magazine. And these were really, these were, these were interesting magazines. They were very involved in sort of Americanization, right? So some of them were like the stories of Wall Street. Very, a lot of them were about westward expansion, right? Many of them, um, unfortunately, were also, when I say nativist, right, what I mean is the kind of virulent American um, racism, xenophobia, all about, well, uh, uh, kind of defining the borders of America at the time with the influx of immigration and other things. So you've got, you've got dime novels like um, The Brady's and the Black Giant or this Nick Carter, uh, which is an anarchist plot. And of course, the anarchist plot, the chaos, takes place in the Chinese opium den, right? This vision of kind of, of, kind of otherness right. and, and villainy has, has blended together. And the earliest pulps kind of replicated this. They grew out of that. Um, but the first pulps, right, the very first pulp was Argosy, 
which originally had been one of these boys' papers, right? Horatio Alger, if you know the Horatio Alger and the American Dream. These were published in the first Argosy and in these dime novels, right? And um, uh, they were very limited when it comes to, to actual sort of visuality. The paper was so porous that they, that they could not hold illustrations besides kind of pencil sketches, right? And these magazines were so popular at the time because they were very cheap and they actually marketed themselves towards the working class instead of the sort of moneyed middle classes that they exploded in all these different titles of general fiction magazines, right? They would have romance, they would have adventure, they would have um, uh, kind of situational class-based stories, they would have westerns, name it, they were all in there. Slowly, because these magazines com competed so much, there were so many of them at the time, that what evolved from them were different genres, right? The first sort of spicy pulps, which, which really the pinup comes from, after uh, which there were so many in the mid-20s that people kind of cartooned it and mocked it. But um, uh, uh, eventually what happened was the genre magazine arose in the, in the mid-19-teens, uh, right? 1915 for Detective Story magazine, quickly followed by Western Story, quickly followed by Love Story, quickly followed by Sea Story, quickly followed by Sports Story, quickly followed by War Story, and then uh, after that, we've got air stories, and eventually the splintering of the pulp genre and all these genres that evolved from that, which eventually we got sort of science fiction, uh, resulted in even more specialized genres like ranch romances, for exactly, right? <laughs> Fight stories is even a more specific type of sports magazine, and it got even crazier by, by the sort of late 1920s. You get front page stories because they were tearing stories out of the newspaper and appealing to people um, on any topic courtroom stories. After that, you get strange suicides. You get Zeppelin stories, right? And it went on and on and on. And this competition was so much, right? That, that, that you can only imagine how colorful and how, how varied the newsstand was. And at this point is when we get the rise of the very first comic, comic books, right? This is the vision that Nicky's grandfather had to separate what he was doing from this panorama of fiction, right? Setting, because competition was so fierce, he needed something to define, to be different um, against all of these other titles. Well, and part of the background was uh, the Depression. So during the Depression, uh, a lot of people suffered and had no money coming in. And these magazines, because they were, there were so many, then the, the writers were not being paid as well. And my grandparents were living in Europe at the time and when the Depression hit, and they had to come back to the United States. And my grandfather was making a really great living writing for the pulps. One of the things that I love about the pulps as a writer myself is that you could make money as a writer. You could make a living. And um, so when he came back, uh, he saw these reprints Mm -hmm. that Jeffrey's talking about the that people took from the uh, newspapers and put them into magazines and he saw those and it just was an aha moment obviously there could be comics that were original stories and original art so that was his big contribution to comics is that it was his idea to create 
all original stories in art. So these characters that you all uh, ha are fond of and, and are interested in, Superman, Batman, the different superheroes, these came out of that idea to have an original idea, not something from something else. And he saw uh, the first drawings of Superman. They were sent to him on a piece of, people have called it butcher paper, some very crude like paper bag type thing. And Siegel, uh, Jerry Siegel sent that to him because he knew of my grandfather from the pulps mm -hmm. because he was a That's big right. pulp fan. And so he sent my grandfather this drawing and something about it just really sparked with my grandfather and he thought, this is a really great idea. So what he did, because the drawing was so crude and he realized they were very untested and untried, he hired them to do some other stories initially and wanted to help them develop the idea into what became Superman. He also hired Bob Kane, who created Batman. He also hired Walt Kelly, who created Pogo. So a lot I didn't know that. Oh, that's cool. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So a lot of the people that we think of as these giants of the comic industry got their start with my grandfather. Why don't you show them show them the picture? This is this is the comic uh, it started as new fun, then became more fun. This is the comic that uh, her grandfather started. This was the first comic to have original content. It wasn't reprints from the newspapers. And to bring it back to what David was saying, what were the genres in those first few issues? He had it was an anthology, and you'd have west. There were western stories in there. In yeah. uh, number three, you had the first science fiction story in a comic book. Was in uh, New Fun number three. Right. Um, so he was, he was taking the lesson from the pulps, genres, you know, and having all of these different genres, and he was doing them in comic book form uh, here. Instead of just doing the you know, newspaper reprints, he was taking you know, the same element that you're getting in the pulps, all these different genres, and creating original comic art and comic stories and publishing them for the first time. Yeah, and this might be a good time to talk about the formulaic aspect okay. of the pulp to kind of bring that sure. in. So, so, so the pulps... One of the reasons that they're so sort of derided, or were at the time, by, by, by critics and by highbrow readers, for example, is that they were very, very formulaic, right? Um, so, for example, let me, let me skip back a little bit. They were so formulaic that authors who would have to pump out these stories so quickly to actually make a living off of them would stick to very kind of um, strict formula for their stories. And they would need tools to help them do this if they were learning how to write pulp stories. So you have things like, the plot genie, right? The plot genie is a wonderful thing. It's a list of books that have plot aspects, characters, uh, plot complications. So as an author, you need a story idea. So you would look at your little um, story plotter right here, which has a little dial on it, and you would dial it, and a number would pop up in the crystal ball, and it'd be number 36. So then you would look at, say, usual female characters, and number 36 would be an Apache's daughter. Or you would need like a plot complication that would be about to be attacked by a lunatic, right? <laughs> so, so this is what authors would do, is they would start kind of, you know, uh, um, 
having very formulaic methods to create to create plots, right? It's almost like a random plot generator. Very much like a random <laughs> plot generator, right? Exactly. And you even have like authors who try to publish for other authors how to write a good mystery plot, and you get really extreme, crazy things like Harry Stephen Keeler's uh, um, web work plot design, which you can see is just absolutely insane, right? Um, uh, but what this points to is again this hyper this hyper competition is exactly how sort of formulaic. Well, with this hyper competition on the newsstand, to actually make money and be successful, you've got to create something that outdoes, right? What's up there that uses the formula but does it in such a, in such a new way that it's original and people buy it. And um, uh, uh, one of the ways that happens, so for example, I'll use this example, the hero pulp, since we're talking about comic books, right. a very easy jump between the hero pulps of the, of the mid-1930s to comics. The very first one is The Shadow, 1931, right? Which is using a formula that you guys are all familiar with, right? A sort of dark vigilante who poses as a rich playboy and who fights crime often with a network of helpers, right? That's the formula. And you guys know that formula because that is the formula of Batman and hundreds of other comics, right, and super, superheroes. It's actually based upon, even earlier in the pulps, right. Zorro, right, which is, uh, which is what, 1919, right? Yeah, Johnson McCauley in, in All Story Magazine, which also is the magazine that, 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 first, that first gave us Tarzan, right? But even that formula was based even earlier on um, the Scarlet Pimpernel, which is 1904. 1906, I think, right? So the formula is rehashed and rehashed, but every time to be able to actually both meet the kind of expectations of the pulp audience, but create something brand new, you bring new aspects to it, like the hero pulps, which get darker and darker and darker over the 1930s, right? Which, which uh, you know, we could talk about at greater length, mm -hmm. you know, yeah, uh, later on, but. But okay, but this is a good this is a good segue. So let's talk about you. You brought up Jerry Siegel. So let's yeah. let's talk about Jerry Siegel for a minute, and we'll get real, and get real specific. Um, um, Jerry Siegel. Everyone knows who Jerry Siegel is, right? The guy that you know, one of the co-creators of Superman with Joe Shuster. Uh, Jerry Siegel, as you said, was very much involved in pulp fandom. He wasn't just a fan of the pulps. He collected pulps. He read pulps. But he was actually heavily involved in organized fandom. Um, everything that we're doing out there right now, having a con being fans of all these different genres, that all began in pulp fandom, uh, specifically the, the fans of the science fiction pulps, um, of Amazing Stories, for example, was the first uh, pulp magazine in 1926. It was dedicated just to, uh, you know, they didn't even call it science fiction at the time. They came up with the term scientifiction, you know, which eventually became science. <laughs> I can't imagine why that didn't stick. Yeah, you know. <laughs> you know. And one of the unique things about Amazing Stories, you know, all the, the pulp magazines would have letters to the editor, editor's column. Uh, but Hugo Gernsback, the guy that uh, published Amazing, decided at one point to publish the addresses of the people that wrote in. And so that way, for the first time, these fans could look at the other letters, and they had the addresses of other fans like themselves that they could write to. So for the first time, you had fans of this genre able to talk to each other. And so they started writing letters to each other, and they started creating fanzines in their own little publications, you know, which was the 1920s and 1930s version of blogs, you know, basically. You know. Uh, you know, fandom, as we know it today, developed because of that simple thing, the fact that Gernsback decided to put these, these addresses in there. And these science fiction fans 
you know, that, that fandom, the first, they put on the first con in 1939. Uh, it's what we call Worldcon today. It's been, they go on you know, still to this day. And comic fandom grew out of that. Uh, you know, science fiction fandom obviously was a part of that. Uh, that grew out of the Pulse. Jerry Siegel was a big part of that. He actually created one of the first fanzines, com uh, Cosmic Stories, in the late 20s. And then he, he did another one, Science Fiction, in the early 30s, in which he had, that was the first time he had the character of Superman. And that was in, you know what your science fiction was? Was it 32, I think? Something like that? 1932, 1933, right in there. Uh, and it was a prose story. Superman's first appearance was in a prose yep. story in a fanzine in 1932, and Joe Schuster drew illustrations to go with it. Um, and it was because he wanted to be a pulp writer. You know, he originally envisioned Superman as a pulp story. And you know? It's fascinating. And actually, it, and it wasn't just Gernsbach. Weird Tales as well published addresses. Right. A lot of them did, but of course, you know, uh, Science fiction has a has a genre so much more sort of canonized, right? We, right. we, we, we it's respectable, right? Um, but it's fascinating to read the letters to the editor in these magazines because what they're doing is they are creating the borders of genre. This right. is science fiction. This is not. Don't publish yeah. these mystery stories in this in this magazine, right? That's not science fiction. That's mystery. And you start getting the solidification of genres that we have today. Debates right. over hard science and science fiction versus soft science. What is fantasy? What is horror? Right. What is weird menace? Right? And you know, again and again and right. again, all these things. And it's really fascinating right. to see these that. genres that we take for granted today. These genre labels and genre definitions developed in the pulps, and in particular, as you said, with the fans, because you had this really intera interesting interaction between the fans and the creators taking place in the pulps, and even in these fanzines. Um, who here is, does anyone here know of uh, the magazine uh, Famous Monsters of Filmland? Anybody heard of that? Some of you guys know about this, right? Forrest Ackerman, you know, the publisher of that. In some of these fanzines, you can see people like Forrest Ackerman, who went on to become, you know, the famous publisher, and, you know, involved in fantasy and science fiction publishing, uh, having, you know, arguments with H.P. Lovecraft in the letters columns of these fanzines, and Clark Ashton Smith about, well, your stories aren't real science fiction, you know, because you have these elements in it and all of this. It's, they're just like fans on the internet today having flame wars <laughs> with each other, except they're doing it by snail mail, you know, so it takes a little bit longer to happen, you know. All of this was taking place at this time. And, uh, you know, people uh, among those, not only Siegel and Forrest Ackerman, you had Julie Schwartz, you know, who, uh, you know, was, at D, was the editor at DC for, for many years. And Mort, Mort Weis Weisinger, Weisinger. Weisinger, you know. Um, Mort Weisinger from DC, you know, uh, was one of these young fans that they started out as pulp fans, you know, in pulp fandom in the 1930s, uh, publishing these fanzines. Donald Wolheim, who you know, was, you know, the you know major publisher of science fiction and fantasy for decades, started as one of these guys in the, you know one of these pulp fans. You know, so all of that was born out of the pulps. You know, all of these guys went on later to become the movers and shakers in in science fiction, in comic books. Um, all of them, they, they cut their teeth as teenagers in the pulp fandom community in the 1930s, you know. And Siegel, of course, was a, was a big player in that. Um, you know, I mentioned he, he started out as a, uh, you know, trying to make Superman as a, a prose story. He wanted to be a science fiction writer. In 1933 is when the first news, uh, newspaper or reprint comics started appearing. Uh, Funnies on Parade was the first one in 1933. Uh, but there were a couple of other ones, and it was at that time uh, that uh, 
uh, you know, Siegel was also a big fan of the newspaper strips, and he started seeing these comic books. And it was very early on, you know, right after that, that he got the idea of, hey, maybe if, you know, if it doesn't work as a prose story, maybe we could do this as a, as a comic strip instead and have Joe Schuster draw for him. And you know, it's at that point. Then you know, a couple of years later, it's probably thirty-five or so when he sent uh, thirty-four oh, no, 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 even no. earlier. No, it was yeah, earlier. it was earlier. It was yeah. right in there. You know, as he first started seeing these first comic books and heard about New Fun, that he decided to, you know, send in his Superman stuff to, uh, to the major to Malcolm, you know, Wheeler Nicholson. Um, so anyway. Uh, I I think what's interesting about the artwork. If you think about the comics that uh, that that we're used to today with the intense uh, artwork, if you look at this artwork, look how simple it is and how there's no background really. Most of the comics that we see today are really cinematic in in the way that they're drawn, and and just look at the difference in in the the way the panels are done. It's really amazing. There's also a Siegel and Schuster uh, comic in here uh, called Dr. Occult. Yeah. And, um, it's basically that it's the, uh, the occult detective genre, which was... Uh, the Green Llama and so many of the right. hero pulps that arose right. were... Um, yeah. And then um, Jerry Siegel was a big uh, reader of Weird Tales in addition to... Um, and he wrote letters to all of them. Um, so uh, there was a, a long long-standing series in Weird Tales by a writer named Seabury Quinn, uh, the Jules de Grandin uh, stories, and he was sort of like Poirot meets X-Files, you know, he was a, you know, a detective that investigated occult well. stuff, and that was a heavy influence on, on Siegel with his, his Dr. Occult strip. Uh, you know, it's basically the, the hard-boiled detective mixed with the weird fiction genre. It was, again, you know, sort of a hybrid genre, what we would today call a hybrid genre, a mashup. Uh, and that was that was what Siegel was doing. Uh, I also want to mention something that a lot of people um, who love comics may not realize: how how they got financed. <laughs> <laughs> and this was my grandfather's undoing, <laughs> and why we didn't all come here in a limousine today. Uh, the during the depression, as you know, there was prohibition. And one of the things that happened in Prohibition is that the guys who delivered the magazines and later the comics to the newsstands also delivered the booze to the speakeasies. So a lot of these publishers, David was showing the spicy stories and spicy detective, the, the two men who were behind that were two men named Harry Donenfeld and Jack Leibowitz, and they ended up with DC Comics. And it's quite a tale, and I'm not going to tell it here, <laughs> but you can imagine it's pretty interesting. Um, so they, they are the ones who ended up with DC Comics because they, they helped to finance my grandfather's uh, publishing and ultimately pushed him out in some very interesting ways. They have some it, it, somewhat seedy connect. Does anybody here watch Boardwalk Empire? 
Okay, some of those, some of the characters in Boardwalk Empire were actually were people that Harry Donenfeld hung out with. People like yeah. Waxy Gordon and Eddie Cantor, and the, the singer. They were actually yeah. newsstand wars, more or less, in the twenties because right. the newsstands were one of the major major places to buy alcohol. Right. Right. Um, as a matter of fact, uh, uh, one of the major sort of newsstands was Walgreens Drugs, right. which um, is actually famous because at the beginning of Prohibition there were like twelve stores. At the end of Prohibition there were like. 150 stores across the country <laughs> because whereas he was famous for creating the milkshake, really um, Walgreens made all its money because they sold medicinal, medicinal alcohol, right? It wasn't medicinal at all. Well, actually, it's all medicinal, wonderfully medicinal. Like, but, but, um, but the link between newsstands, and if you think about the distribution network across the United States for newsstands, right, it's a perfect cover. Right for getting pints of booze for to distributing mass, right? And yeah. for bringing it in the into the country because the a lot of the pulp wood paper that was used for pulps was coming from Canada. Right. Yeah. The same place Canadian whiskey was coming from. And so that way you'd only, you know, you'd only have to if you had somebody that was controlling, you know, the those distribution networks, you could use that as a cover for bringing whiskey yeah. in, then you could use it a cover, as a cover again to distribute it. Yeah. To all of the newsstands, to the place where you get it to market. The, the, it's one of the yeah. reasons why why the sort of nineteen mid mid twenties to to early thirties, the rise of gangster pulps, which are wonderful and seldomly scrutinized, is one of my favorite genres because it's really sort of reflective because the sort of gangster pulps yeah. are being sold by gangsters right. more or less it's almost right, a meta on, on newsstands, right? right? You know, exactly. And the, yeah, and they're they're really you know, wonderful. And and then when comic books became popular. Comic books took the place, and these it was it, comic books became a part of that too. Those early, you know, early comics, and and they were popular right, right. away. And yeah. that's one of the reasons. What happened is that once prohibition ended, and there was a crackdown on all the gangsters and and the uh, the terrible crime that was happening, is that Harry Donenfeld and Jack Leibowitz had to find something to put their money into that would be okay. And they saw, because my grandfather was using their printing and their distribution, they saw these comics coming through and they thought, oh, this hey. looks good. Right. Let's get in on this racket. And you know. so that's essentially how it started with them slowly getting him out of the business. And to be honest, my grandfather was not a businessman and to tell you the truth, I'm not sure that if that had never happened, any of all of this would have happened, to be perfectly honest. So, you know, you have to give these guys their due. Uh, what I said in front of a whole bunch of Warner Brothers lawyers who attended a panel of mine at San Diego, I said, if Harry Donenfeld was the ultimate salesman and Jack Leibowitz was the great accountant and financier, the third person of that trio is my grandfather who had the creative vision. So without that creative vision, they would just be known as the publishers of Spicy Detective. <laughs> well, this, this, that's a perfect time to jump into some questions, I think. we got about 20 minutes left. Let's get some questions from the audience. Who's got any? Somebody, come on now. Seriously, no questions? What's your Um, I'm, I'm a big fan of Weird Tales. Um, you know, it's uh, mainly because it has, you know, all of the genres that I enjoy. It's got uh, fantasy, horror, science fiction, 
all three of those genres, you know, science fiction, you know, had its own kind of thing, but in particular, fantasy and horror, as we think of them today, developed in weird tales. You know, that's where H.P. Lovecraft was was publishing all, most of his work. Uh, it's Robert E. Howard and his Conan stories first appeared in Weird Tales. Um, some of the guys that are you know not quite as known today, but Clark Ashton Smith wrote some amazing fantasies that were hugely influential. Robert Block, who wrote Psycho, uh, was a, a Weird Tales regular. Ray Bradbury wrote for Weird Tales. So you know there were there was some amazing creative stuff going on in that magazine. So to me, that's my favorite. What about you guys? You know. Well, of course, because my grandfather, I love adventure uh, yeah. magazine a lot. There, if you know that magazine, it's really wonderful. There are such great adventure stories in there. And uh, by the way, my grandfather was not as prolific a writer as a lot of the pulp writers because he really cared about his writing. In fact, he was nominated three times for an O. Henry Short Story Award. So. Um, I, I like the adventure and the covers, some of the covers are just, uh, is it Hubert Rogers? Hubert? Um, I'm not familiar with that one. Uh, who just does the most beautiful, beautiful covers. Just the color and the, the whole thing is just some Paul, amazing. That's one of the amazing things about the Pulps really too is, is, is the covers. I mean, just, yeah. I mean, the, the, some of them are just spectacular, you know. Um, some of them but, are. But we like them for the articles, too. Oh, yeah. Right. <laughs> <laughs> we do. But, you know, some of them are just, you know, incredibly lurid and, you know, with, with primary colors and they jump out at you and, you know, I mean, because they were meant to hook you in, and, grab you, and sell you. And they you actually know? created that type of marketing. Right? Yeah. They you created know? the illustrative or the narrative cover, right? Before that, um, uh, you maybe got a portrait on the cover, right? Or you got text. Right? And the pulps really pioneered modern um, sort of illustrative design. Right? Um, why? Because there were so many on the newsstand, you had to capture that passerby's interest with just a corner of right. the magazine showing. Right. Right? And there are stories, um, uh, uh, popular publications, Harry Steger is said to have actually rebuilt a newsstand in his office, and he would send out the, like the, you know, the office boy to go and you know, buy, give him 10 bucks and tell him to go buy that once that wants magazines, at 10 bucks buys an awful lot of pulps, right? And he would put them out, and then he would put his magazines, the, the mock-ups of his magazines next to them, just to see if they, if they were punchy, if they popped out or not. And if they weren't, send them back to the art, art department and he'd make them redo them. Yeah. Right? So you see um, the earliest pulps, like some of the ones he showed, like that Argosy, yeah, yeah. it's basically just a list of stories yeah. and text. It, you know, by the end of the 30s, you had the hard-boiled tough right, guy right. with a 45, you know, protecting the damsel in distress who's chained up from the army of zombies, yeah. you know? You can see, I mean, and, and they're wonderfully, right? They're, <laughs> they're wonderfully, wonderfully illustrative. You know, um, you know uh, uh, this is just from an earlier presentation on sort of hero pulps. Um, but, I mean, uh, of course, because competition gets more and more and more fierce, right? The pulps and their marketing gets more and more and more extreme over the course of the 1930s until what you have by the end of the 30s are the most sensational covers, um, usually of, of shutter pulps, they're called, or of things like um, Spicy Detective and stuff like that, which are really sort of pushing the boundaries of taste, even though the fiction is not necessarily you know, all, all that. They promised more than they actually delivered, right? So please. Uh, I've seen some really super lurid ones from the 50s, these men's 
Are, are you thinking the ones like like weasels clawed my flesh and stuff like that? Yeah. So so those actually aren't those actually aren't um, pulps per se by this definition, right? Those are Men's Adventure magazine, but they really just they're just another evolution. As the pulps start to die out for lots and lots of reasons, right? Competition with right. television, competition with, with with movies, competition with comic paperbacks. books, paperbacks and stuff like that, right? Many of the pulps either died or they transitioned to men's magazine. They became bedsheet, the paper got better quality so they could hold photographs, right? Men like photographs of certain things, right? right. So <laughs> they, they, get, they get saucier, uh, uh, and that eventually evolves into what people do call pulps, right, because they're pulp-ish. But that's the cultural definition as opposed to the sort of material, historic definition. It's the pulp it. aesthetic, you right. know, is, yeah. is continued, even if the medium has changed, you know. And one of those men's magazines is, that continued even in, into the 70s uh, is, Book. well, Blue Book, but also yeah. Argosy. Yeah, Argosy does. The, Argosy. The, the one that he put up there, the very first yeah. pulp magazine, you know, that started in, what, 1890? Yeah, 96, I think, yeah. Which, yeah, which, if any, not to plug, but we're all going to plug our books, sure I think, right? Books. So if you're actually interested in 1950s men's magazines, I have this upstairs. Um, <laughs> this, this, is, this is my book. But it actually goes into that whole history. Right. There are multiple different types of men's magazines. Um, Argosy becomes, becomes a more or less magazine. a men's sports sort of right. suburban magazine. Blue Book, though, becomes yeah. a really, really seedy sort of men's adventure magazine. Um, and by the 1970s, when it dies, it's... Um, I mean, stories of like uh, the 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 Fraulein Nazi who um, right. you know uh, love camp, it right? Was I mean, she wolf of the other yeah, stuff. Yeah, you know, yeah. They get they get they get very bad. very sort of extreme <laughs> for, for lots of reasons. But please. <laughs> right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. They they did get very tabloidish, but yeah. and actually, I mean, the the, the that's a whole other type of magazine, the tabloid yeah. magazine, the 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 true. Um, yeah confessional that arises in the late teens and over the 20s, right. which eventually becomes the, National Choir. But the hero pulps really pretty much changed and developed, it were taken place by the comic books and the superhero comics. No. The science fiction pulps changed into digest format, you know, and got smaller and, you know, so, so that, you know, the, the material was still out there, it was just evolving and going into different mediums and doing what it needed to, you know, to survive. And, and right. now it's movies. And now yeah, it's now movies. it's become movies. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. Uh, yep. That kind of brings up what I was going to Yeah. Well, I, I think they're very intertwined. And one of the things that really attracted me about my grandfather's writing, because that's how I really, I really became interested in him through the pulps. Uh, my family, uh, I didn't know my grandfather. And when I started trying to find out more from my family about him, they never really, nobody really had any of his pulps and they kind of poo-pooed them and, you know, because they were sort of, you know, lowbrow. And my grandfather did write a lot of uh, uh, military strategy, political books later in his career. He was in Look Magazine and Harper's and very, you know, highbrow type things. And so, I finally found a pulp on eBay. This was about 15 years ago. 
and of my grandfather's, and the, it was the cover, and the title was The Aristocrat of the Badlands. And I thought, I have to have that. <laughs> <laughs> so I got the pulp, and I read it, and I loved it. I just loved it because it was such a great story. And that's what just really got me into all of this, trying to find out more about how all of this got started and why I hang out with these guys who, <laughs> oh my gosh, really, really. <laughs> they know uh, so much, it's scary. <laughs> on the movie thing, that goes with the pulps all the way back to the very beginning. Yeah. And once you actually right. start looking, I can't even, uh, it's, you can't even start to count the pulp stories. We don't even know, the movies are lost, right? right. Thousands of movies were based on pulp stories. The, the studios mined the pulps yeah. for authors and for ideas, right? right? I mean, when Early you... Early on, Tarzan you, the Ape Man was... The uh, movie was, what, night, the first one was, what, 1918 or something yeah. like that? So, you know, just a, a handful of years after Tarzan first appeared in the pulps. The first Zorro movie came out within a couple of years right. uh, with, and, well, with Douglas Fairbanks. Even for that, I mean, Robert T. Coates, Robert T. Coates, right. who eventually became... It went on to, at a transition, a, a, a famous modern little magazine that published people like James Joyce. Early on in his career... He um, was a pulp author, right? And the very first film that had a, a, a film of a novel was based upon one of his novels, well, right? Well, the reason I think for that is the very, the best pulp writers, I, I feel, are very cinematic in the way that they write. So when you read a really good pulp story, it's like you're reading a movie script, practically, yeah. because there's a long shot, and then there's a close-up of the hero and what's happening with the hero, and then there's dialogue between the characters, and that's how the story is revealed. So in some ways, the formulaic aspect of the pulps does Lends lend itself, itself yeah. to right. this. Because it's, they're, they're meant to be read I mean, quickly, and the themes themselves are so sensational. I mean, King Kong is the perfect pulp movie, right? right. Uh, um, they got Edgar Wallace, a sort of more or less British right. pulp author, to sort of novelize after the fact. But um, even sort of situational movies like, post, like, like the pre-code films about sort of divorce and, you know, wild women and, and, and things like that are, are plot for plot lifted from magazines like Snappy Stories and Saucy right. Stories about, you know, the gay divorcee and things like this. I mean, name a genre, it's from the pulps. Hopalong well, Cassidy is a Clarence Mulford pulp story. Here's right? another one. Let me plug my book. Okay. Uh, yeah, <laughs> awesome. Fantastic. <laughs> okay. How many people know what the first zombie movie is? Does anyone know the first zombie movie at all? It's, you know? Close. It's White Zombie. White Zombie with Bela Lugosi, which uh, came out uh, in 1932, the year after Dracula. So this is when Lugosi's at his peak and he's hot. Uh, this director wanted to do a zombie movie. He got the idea from a pulp story about zombies that a guy named uh, G.W. Hutter, it was a pen name he used, uh, wrote for the pulp magazine Ghost Stories. He wrote a zombie story in there. Uh, this director had read it. He'd read another book on, uh, there was a sort of a Haitian travelogue uh, that uh, talked about zombies. And so he wanted to do a zombie movie, so he went and got this pulp writer that he liked his story, got him to write the screenplay for White Zombie with Bela Lugosi. You know, so again, another example of that, right about the same well, time. And the, 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 the serials of the, of the 1930s and 1940s, right, which, which to a certain extent are, are very well forgotten. It's what Star right. Wars is based on, yep. right, hence why it starts with episode, right, right. whatever. It, it's, what, it's what Raiders of the Lost Ark are based on. 
those are based on pulp. Right. Buck right? Rogers was a, was a pulp character. It was, it was a pulp one character of the early as well. Serials, you yeah. know, um, all of the adventure serials were, you know, straight from the pulps. Yeah. You know? And it, it, so it's, it's, once you actually start looking and start delving into the myriad of genres, and every single one's different, and the, and the format of them all are entirely different, the more you start seeing connections with things that surround us in popular culture on a daily basis now. Right? Again and again and again. Yeah. One of the things that we that all three of us feel very strongly, obviously we all love the pulps, yeah. um, is that, that they've been marginalized in so many ways and people don't really understand what uh, a tremendous impact they've had on popular culture, on comics and, and how comics have evolved and have such an impact on popular culture through the television shows, the, the movies that are being made. So we, we feel so strongly that these stories and these writers, that this is a, 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 an American genre, uh, an American format that's very unique. And I personally feel that it is the inheritor of the wonderful Victorian uh, novels, yeah. which were also, and of course David is an expert in this area, but I, I also feel that very much and that it's been overlooked and so we're encouraging you to find out more about pulps and and with that in mind let's get one more question over there real quick before we plug our books uh, what, what was the creative control like back then with, with know, characters and development uh, uh, it depends yeah, yeah. yeah it depends it on the depends. character yeah much of it was i mean uh, uh, uh often um, there would be one sort of author of rote who would dictate plots, and then he would have a sort of stable of authors who would then kind of write to his specifications. Sometimes it was um, a house name that, you know, but, but editors almost invariably had, had the say on it, right? And there were editors of all different qualities, uh, you know. Um, and publishers. And, and publishers, just like there was writers of all different qualities as well. I mean, there's plenty of schlock, bad stuff, right? But there's plenty of really wonderful law stuff as well. Um, uh, uh, and what I was going to say, so, uh, so the next question, or the next, which you guys want to ask, Dr. Earl, I have a question for you. Okay, great. Um, <laughs> and that is, so how do we learn about the pulps? What's a good anthology, or what's a good sort of general introduction to the pulps, which I think we could all probably probably answer, and besides, I mean, this. There's one right here. Yeah. Well, this, this is, uh, I'm, I'm going to plug my book. Um, this is uh, just newly published. Uh, I haven't even started doing PR for it yet. And um, these are stories that my grandfather wrote uh, from the pulps. And uh, the way the book is formatted is to give you an idea of his life because the stories follow his, his biography in a way. So they don't, the stories are not necessarily in, um, by the year they were published, but what he used from his own life, from his own biography, and how he wrote these stories. Um, so that's my book. <laughs> um. Uh, it's called the Texas Siberia Trail, and it's on Amazon, or you can get it from me upstairs. <laughs> the, the, the book that really introduced me, my father was a pulp um, uh, reader. Um, he collected Doc Savage, and as a kid, I was very into Tolkien and then Burroughs and some other people, but the book that got me started is by Tony Goodstone, and you can find copies on 
um, Amazon or Advanced Book Exchange for pennies, right? And it's great. It's called The Pulps by Tony Goodstone. It's probably 70, 77, 78 maybe. Um, and it has all of the greatest hits in there, plus authors you've never heard of, right? So it gives you a good variety from all the different genres, and it has two big fat color sections of covers, right? And that's the one that has a kid that, that hooked me. It's got, you know, Howard yeah, was it the- That is the, a great one. That, right? That's a great book, it yeah. really is. So it's a really, really good general anthology over all the genres, and I don't know of any other kind of good general yeah, anthologies like, like that. not like that, especially no. with the covers, uh, illustrations. Right. I, too, I'd also so. say that if, if you are interested, that th my publisher, John Locke, of Off Trail yeah. Publications, uh, he's you can get on his website. He has great reprints of pulps in different genres, right. and he also uh, Press is another one that does yeah. a lot of good yeah. reprints. Yeah. Um, all right, let me plug mine. Uh, here's one: Zombies from the Pulp. This is this is my anthology I just put out. Um, that's a, a collection of zombie stories. Again, this here's another example of a genre that's popular today that really sort of began in the pulps. Like I mentioned white zombie coming, coming out of the pulps, but in the 1920s and 30s, uh, zombie stories filled the pulps. Um, you know, in most, uh, most of the stories in this collection, there, there's two types. One that comes from the, this, what they call the weird fiction pulps, like weird tales. And so there's stories, I've got you know, Lovecraft in here and Robert E. Howard and some of those guys I was mentioning. Also a lot of the stories from the shutter pulps that David was talking about. These are the sort of racier, seedier ones, you know, and they're, uh, you know, some of those, uh, you know, they, they love zombies in those pulps, you know. There's always, you know, plenty of, plenty of excuses to have zombies attacking people and, you know, ripping the damsels, you know, yeah. you know, clothes off as the guy comes, you know. So some of those are, you know, pretty seedy, but it's got a, a you know, it, it, there's a, quite a few of those in here too. So you get... Uh, sort of a mix of maybe the higher brow stuff and definitely some of the lower brow stuff too, right. um, but with a, a genre that's you know really popular today. And, and there are two good yeah. publishing houses that do sort of mock-ups of pulps as if they're the original right. ones. If you can't afford the original ones, or if you try and buy them on eBay, but there's so many thousands and thousands, you don't really know what's good, what's bad, what you should get, how much you should pay for it. Start with some of the republications by Adventure House. Yeah. Um, which you can, everybody can remember, Adventure House, and they have them from across the genres. And then if you are a real collector, Girasol out of Canada, G-I-R-A-S-O-L, which is actually named after the Shadow's Red Ring, right? Yeah. Girasol pulps, they do almost perfect replications, almost down to the paper right. of original pulps. And a lot of the, a lot of the rarer ones too. Right. And also the Saints of Books does the Shadow, Doc Savage. Right. Right. Yep. And those, and they're, and they're affordable. Yeah. Right? Yeah. They're, and they're, they're definitely affordable. affordable. They even have the original ads, which are a lot of fun too. Yeah. 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 What's the name of the Pope? Sanctum Books. Sanctum. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So you can, you can, they're, they're out there, right? And actually, and the original Popes are out there as well. Um, uh, uh, titles like, like Ranch Romance. If you like romance and if you like Westerns, that's very affordable. <laughs> <laughs> Nobody collects those. Let's, so, let's so. do a quick plug too for for Bill Lampkin over here does thepulp.net, which is a great one-stop resource for getting information on the pulps. He's got it's almost a clearinghouse of links and places to go to. Thepulp.net, easy right. to remember. And 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 of course, um, uh, and the pulp magazine project, um, pulpmags.org, digitizes magazines and puts them up online um, as well. So if you want to sort of read some uh, uh, first, jump on. Um, it's kind of a grab bag what you might get because it's just sort of what's been able to, to what's been digitized or what's been able to sort of be digitized, right? So.
All right. Well, I think with that, Is we're, that we're at 530. Yeah. Yep. I think we're done. Perfect. Listen, you guys, we're going to be here all weekend. So come up. We're upstairs in the, the upper deck. Come on by. Say hi. Check out some real pulps. Come talk with us. You've been listening to a Pulp Event Podcast brought to you by the PulpNet when your next adventure was just a dime away. Please visit us online at thepulp.net. Thank you for listening, and keep reading the pulps.